Hi, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productize Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Productize podcast. My name is Andre, and I'm a co-founder of Productize, and I'll be your co-host today, along with my colleague and fellow product manager, Paulo. Hello. Hello, DSU. Hi. Hi, Paulo. So for the past few years, we've been doing a series of interviews with product innovators, successful makers, entrepreneurs, and our mission is really to inspire, connect, empower more people to get into product roles and help you to be the better professional. So super thrilled with having Gibson Biddle today with us. Gibson is, is also a friend, but let me just give you a, a quick intro here to his uh, professional path. Gibson Biddle joined Netflix as a VP of product in 2005. In 2010, he became the chief product officer of his next startup, Jag a textbook rental and homework help company that went public in 2014. Today, he's an advisor, speaker, guest lecturer at both Stanford and INSEAD, and I'm super excited to host him today. So hi, Gibson. Welcome, and thank you for being with us today. It has been a while since we last met at, well, virtually at the Product Over Laminate event last year, and, you know, in 2019 here in Lisbon for the Productized Conference. So how are you? Good, Andre. I'm really here, and I happen to be up in Oregon right now, which is a good place to be. It's still snow country, skiing here, but it's all so is well. Season. I'm actually double vaccinated, if you can believe it, because I'm 59, and that has some benefits. All right, great. Which kind of vaccine did you take? The Pfizer? Uh, two, two Modernas. So Moderna. I'm, I'm two weeks. Okay. I actually volunteered at a clinic, so I gave 5,000 shots on the first day, and because of that, I was 5,000. 50 and did the same thing on the second day down in California. Cool. And it feels cool. good. Great. That's super, super good to know that you have been vaccinated and that you are, you know, safe of mind as well, right? You know, I think it's such an important thing for everyone. But I guess you have been dealing with this pandemics like everyone else. Did you have time for your own adventures? Have you been living outdoor a lot? What's your lifestyle yeah. right now? I mean, I my year of pandemic started around gosh, March 8. I actually was in London and I, I had to fly home early to California. Mm-hmm. My whole family was, we were under the same roof for two months, had family dinners every night, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of crazy. My daughters are 23 and 25. And then I actually, it's kind of a little embarrassed, but my year was really very good because I, I spent all of my time trying to figure out how to create virtual experience, talks, workshops, and exec events mm-hmm. that are just as good as as an in-person event. And I think you know me, Andre, I'm a freak about feedback systems. So I have an NPS, a net promoter score for everything I do at the end. So I figured out how to get my net promoter score at parity, frankly, sometimes higher than in-person. So from a creative challenge, that was really cool. Uh, Yes, I did manage to backpack about 30 days Mm -hmm. with my wife and kids. In in Uh, the US? In the US, yep. I've only been on an airplane twice in the last year. Usually, I would be on an airplane four or five times a month. So that was pretty different. Uh, in this ski season, I've skied quite a bit. I usually try to ski my age in days, and I'm only at like 30, and I'm, I'm 59. But in the next three weeks, I should be able to do some skiing, which would be great. That's great. That's a great metric, right? It is. Um, 
You got to so, have some non-work metrics. You know, I also I tend to backpack half my age in days. So I made that goal. I actually noticed your essay on, on a climbing expedition you did in Alaska some time ago, but you did write about it a couple of weeks ago. So what did you learn from those outdoor adventures? Yeah, so I do a lot of outdoor stuff. And, you know, usually my lessons are in leadership. But I, yeah, I wrote an essay on Ask Gib, which is one of my new creative endeavors. It's been really fun. I, I answer questions a couple times a week. That essay was about a trip I did to Alaska to climb Mount Hayes, which is a 14,000-foot peak in the middle of Alaska. It actually takes two weeks of hiking to get there and then two weeks to get out. And it's a very remote peak. Whenever I'm in the outdoors, of course, there's lots of challenges and problems to be solved, et cetera. And for me, you know, some of them are life and death too. I mean, truly high stakes. That particular one, I did it with the National Outdoor Leadership Society. And we got all the way out there. And then there was so much new snow and storms. This is in May, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of crazy that we unable to climb. And so this objective that we had that everybody worked so hard for and, and hiked for, we just couldn't do. And it was a bummer. There's about 20 of us. You know, my leadership lesson on that one was I basically found a Snickers bar in one of my pockets. A Snickers bar, if you've been out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. for two weeks, is very, very valuable. So I said we were going to do, a, you know, the first national outdoor leadership school, no talent, talent show. And we built an amphitheater in the snow. And then everybody did their act. And the prize was this Snickers bar. Okay. You know, my main lessons about leadership from the outdoors is really about how important it is to be positive. So if you're not positive, it's really hard to rally the troops to do Mm -hmm. those big inspirational things. And just to recognize that you are going to be beset with problems all the time. And your job as a leader is to solve those problems. You're also a leader. You're not a follower. And that means you have to occasionally take on a lot of personal risk. You have to stick your neck out there and try things that you're uncomfortable with. And sometimes I debate whether leadership is purely, you know, is it a practice start that everybody can be a leader? I think it is. But I also, I noticed that some individuals are just more comfortable with taking on leadership. And so I was one of those people. I, of course, was the president or the, the captain, the ski team, the captain of lacrosse team. I was always taking on that leadership role in all of my school mm-hmm. stuff. And the benefit is I had a lot of practice. And so that was super helpful for me. For people in careers, you know, there's lots of leadership opportunities. We're on a meetup, right? Bring product leaders from all of Paris together, you know, once a month. That's a leadership opportunity and you learn from those things. So look for all those ways to practice leadership. Right. And, you know, I'm still talking a little about your early years. Uh, you did an MBA and, and then you were in marketing. So what led you to move your career towards product, right? What was Yeah, the- you're right. So my first real job out of college, I actually was a sailing instructor, mm-hmm. but then I took a job in a mailroom in an ad agency. So I delivered mail mm-hmm. for three or four months, but then I began a marketing career. So I was really a marketing person and then I went to business school and then I joined Electronic Arts in 1991 in marketing. Mm-hmm. But I really was enamored of actually building stuff. So back then, the job at Electronic Arts Building Stuff, the first role was an assistant producer and then an associate producer. I was a director of marketing and I said, hey, I want to build stuff. I really love to build stuff. Like on weekends, I'll host a dinner party for 15 people during non-COVID times. You know, I'll build a tree house. So I'll build a new deck in the backyard. I just love creating stuff. And so that was my instinct. 
and I switched over at Electronic Arts. The big debate was whether I was going to be an assistant producer. That's the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I became an associate producer. That was the compromise. But I really, really love building stuff. And Electronic Arts was a great place to learn how to build stuff. And I've never looked back since that moment. But it was a big change in the direction, in the vector, if you will, of my career. A big experiment. And I took on a lot of personal risk in doing that. And mm-hmm. I was rewarded. It's been awesome. Yeah. So still talking a little about your, your leadership style. What have you learned about your leadership style in terms of strengths and weakness? And, and how do you use those insights as in your role as a speaker, teacher, and, and mentor today? If I'm interviewing anybody, let's imagine a VP of marketing or finance or tech or a CEO or a director in marketing or a manager in product. If I'm trying to understand their leadership skills, I'm usually thinking about really six key ideas. The first is leadership, and I call that their ability to communicate an inspired vision of the future. The second is their strategic thinking skills. The third is their management ability, and that's really the ability to hire and develop teams to build organizations. I look for proactive, results-oriented folks. You're not a follower. You're a leader. I look for folks that have the domain expertise in their job. So if they're a product leader, they have the technical skills of a product leader. Uh, And then I look for folks that understand the role of culture. So, and and culture is really cool. Of course, they need to be a culture fit. But the cool thing about culture is if you really pay attention to it, people can make decisions, great decisions about people, product, and the business without heavy-handed process. Process tends to squeeze the life out of creative work that individuals can make great decisions. So those are the things I look for in leaders. My skills, I've learned how to do that, the hardest thing, which is the main leadership skill, the inspired communication of a vision. I've learned a lot about strategic thinking and how to define a, a product strategy. And then I have been incredibly enamored of how powerful culture can be mm-hmm. to help people to make great decisions about people, product, and the business without even talking to each other, without heavy-handed processes. So those are the three things that I tend to over-index on today. But everyone's different. And frankly, if I were interviewing a candidate, I just want to know what their two or three superpowers are on that list, right? Because, you know, every job requires different skills. And then, you know, the other thing I've learned is don't worry too much about your weaknesses. It's all, companies are hiring you for your superpowers, those two key skills that really make you special. You know, for instance, I suck at like, I can't quickly build a spreadsheet or a cash flow statement. You know, I don't have strong sort of business financial skills and that's okay. You know, of course, I always have great partners in finance or think about it. I, I love, you know, I call it consumer science and there's better living through data, but I always have a person that helps me to, to work the data. You know, I can't do my own SQL query, but I always have a partner who can help me with that kind of stuff. So don't worry too much about the things you stuck that you stink at and focus much more on those superpowers. Yeah. So that's exactly one of the topics that you're going to to talk about here at um, you know, at the masterclasses. So you're going to be one of our trainers at the Productize masterclasses on May 27. So it's actually on the very first day. And your masterclass is on hacking your product leader career. Can you give us a, a sneak what preview what what this is yeah, going sure. to be about and also how are you adjusting to this new reality? Because culture now with everyone being remote, is it the same practice? And what are the new challenges really? 
Sure. So two questions. Preview on the Hacking Your Career Masterclass. And second, you know, the challenge of COVID, maybe post-COVID. Okay, so here's my thing. I think that the most important product in your life, Andre, is you. <laughs> okay. So I encourage everyone yeah. to think about them being a product, right? And just like products, you you figure out how to package and position those products. You figure out how to you create new hypotheses and experiment and figure out what works and what doesn't. I encourage people to think of themselves as a product. You know, how do you package and position yourself? What are your product skills? What are your leadership skills? What are your superpowers? And then I encourage you to always have these hypotheses that you experiment with. And then you can experiment with anything. And based on those results and learning, figure out what to do next. And that's what you do. You know, products is all about experimentation. Look at the results, apply human judgment, figure out what's next, have a strategy. So I, I encourage people to think of themselves as a product. So for instance, the last five years of my career, some of my hypotheses were I would love being a teacher in a classroom. Another hypothesis was I would love to be a venture capitalist. That's what most people like me would do at this stage in their career. Those are both failed hypotheses. I experimented with both, right? Mm -hmm. um, the hypotheses that worked out, I love to teach outside the classroom. And that's really what I've been doing. And I do talks, workshops, and executive events about product strategy, about hacking your career, about culture, the things that I love. And it's been amazing. It took me a bunch of years of experimentation to get to that focus. Another hypothesis I'm experimenting with now is that I can be more helpful to help product leaders around the world learn by writing. So you'll see, I've written quite a bit on Medium, but I've really increased the pace. I'm writing a few essays each week on Ask Gib. People ask me questions and I answer them. It's really great fun. Yeah. But think of that we'll, as an experiment. We'll be sharing the, the, your medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just think of that as an experiment. Can I play with you for a second, Andre? Sure. Yeah. Play with By Paul way, as well. You made yourself <laughs> big and small. Okay. So let's say 10 years from now, yeah. what might you like to be doing? It's a question, right? Yeah, that's the question. Uh, yeah, so probably yeah, being a teacher, I guess, university. Um, yes, okay, yeah. good. And so what are the possible ways to experiment with that idea in the next year, right? To begin to validate that theory or not. So for instance, I think it would be straightforward for you to be a guest lecturer at the local university. Have you tried that yet? Yeah, actually we do. <laughs> We, yeah, are, yeah. we are trying that for the last uh, six months or so. Oh, good. And do you, did you like it? Um, I'm still in the process, I must say. I do like it. I just feel that I'm still, uh, I haven't, you know, you said it yourself. It took you a bunch of time to understand that. So I'm still in the process of understanding cool. whether this is moving forward. Yeah, that's great. So the reason I chose the 10 years, in the long term, anything is possible. So when I asked mm -hmm. the 10-year question about a person's career, I'm purposely encouraging them to think big and long-term right. and then try to walk it back and figure out the little experiments. And by the way, another part of hacking your career, I call it a personal board of directors, to have mm -hmm. a collection of mentors and peers that you can talk about this stuff with because nobody's self-aware, right? And nobody knows everything. You know, five years ago, I created an all-new board. It includes like Dan Olson's on my board. You know, because he was doing what I That's was great. interested in, right? You know, he, he's written a book, he does talks, he does workshops. And so, you know, he, he continues to be on my personal board of directors. 
Anyways, do, do you guys meet on a regular basis? You have like a Zoom yeah, yeah, call every yeah, month. Yeah, yeah. So the concept of personal board of directors, you know, at any moment in time, I have probably six or eight folks. All eight of them don't know they're on my personal board of directors. So to mm-hmm. answer your question, okay. you know, some of them I meet once a year, right? Others I'll call or text like a couple of times a month. What kind of um, questions do you ask? Because if they oh, don't okay, know well, they are really a, 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 yeah. an official board. Okay, well, let's, imagine, let's imagine yeah. that I'm a, a peer on your personal board of directors. Oh, that's really interesting. You're becoming a university professor. Let me tell you about my experience. Okay. okay? And, and I'll tell you, I was in the classroom at Stanford for three or four years. And then the things that I didn't appreciate that I, I wouldn't have known until I experimented it required that I was home every fall. I was teaching entrepreneurship to engineers. And that was the biggest thing. It took away a lot of flexibility. I love mm-hmm. to travel. I love to explore. And that's when I realized, gosh, I need a more flexible approach to teaching, which is what I do is incredibly flexible. I'm in Bend, Oregon, talking to folks all over the world, right? Yeah. It's way cool. Anyways, that would be the kind of conversation you and I might have. And then we might have some other ideas about ways to test that hypothesis that you have. I mean, my current conversation with most of my little board of directors is, should I write a book, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm not convinced. Like, I feel like books are old school, right? You know, I, I well, write a lot. And Teresa Torres is, is launched her this May, Exactly. Right? Well, and so. it, could, it could just be that I'm, yeah, I noticed like Dan's got his book, Teresa's got her book. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be I'm a little lazy, you know, who and knows? Sandy has got his book. So. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the theory is to get you to the next level of credibility. Right now, like my whole series on how to define a product strategy is just sitting there waiting for people on Medium, right? You don't have to mm-hmm. buy anything. And I so, keep well, updating it all the time, which is cool. One, one of the things people sometimes ask is, okay, that's a great idea, but how do I get mentors? Okay. How do I get someone to be on my board of personal directors yeah. or my personal a, board of directors, right? So that's, I think, one of the questions that's on that's everyone's awesome mind. awesome question. You're correct. People ask it all the time. Mm. I, and that's why I wrote an essay on it, on, on Ask Gibbs. So maybe Sarah can find that particular essay. All right. I'll answer your question. So the mentors and peers are different animals. Mentors are, you and I, I regard as peers. And so uh, finding peers is a lot of it, like LinkedIn makes it really easy. So if you just lightly keep up your connections with everybody you've worked with in the past, mm-hmm. that's a great source of potential peers. Mm-hmm. Like when I was running product at Chegg, I could send a text to like eight of my pals, and, you know, with a basic question, what percentage of your traffic is on mobile app versus mobile web versus desktop, right? Yeah. And within like 12 minutes, I'd have like six data points. It was awesome, right? And that's the power of having peers. The mentors are a little trickier. So the way I encourage folks to think about this is start with a light connection. So one of my most helpful mentors, his name is Irv Grossbeck. He is 30 years older than I, and he went to Little Amherst College. That's where I went. He happened to invent the cable TV industry, right? He's a big deal as an entrepreneur. He also was the professor of entrepreneurship at Stanford. But the light connection was that we both went to Amherst College. So I sent a little note saying, hey, Irv, can I come and have an office hour, you know, at Stanford? And because I went to Amherst, Amherst is teeny. It's like 1,500 students. Like, of course he said yes. And then over time, you build the relationship. Mm-hmm. On the other side, like some people have approached me like that. I'm aware. I sort of test them. 
I say, hey, set up a meeting in three weeks. Like that's a random time frame. But if they can navigate my schedule and calendar and care enough to do it, that it happens. That's a mini test. And the next thing I encourage people to do is figure out how to create value for your mentor. Mm-hmm. So like I'm 59 years old, okay? Which is to say I'm older than dirt. Like I'm now on Instagram with Ask Yet. You're Paul, like, you're Paul is age. Yeah, I'm clueless, right? And so there's lots of folks out there that are really smart about what to do and not do on Instagram. And they're helping me right? Yeah. So then they're truly helpful to me. It, it sounds non-intuitive that you can help your potential mentor, but yeah. all mentors need help with something. John Liu, he wanted me to be his mentor. He wanted to change from data science into product, pretty big change. And I said, John, you gotta, just got to build something to see what it feels like. And you know, I said, hey, can you connect me with entrepreneurs to start up on a Saturday? And finally, I said, John, just freaking build a website. And he said, I can't build a website. I said, yes, you can. I gave him my credit card and said, build me a gibsonbiddle.com website on Squarespace. And Monday morning, you know, he came in and said, okay, done. He built me a website using Squarespace. He created tons of value for me. And everybody can go there, gibsonbiddle.com. I put a link for you on yeah. that link. It says, we're hey, going... product type peeps. It's um, there's a bunch of resources that we're talking about. Anyways, yeah. peers, easy. LinkedIn, keep up your old connections. Mentors harder. You're going to have a list of 10 potential mentors, and maybe you're successful with one or two of them. But find the loose connection, figure out how you can create value for them, pass their tests. And then if there's good fit over time, they might be a mentor for you. And by the way, it's really helpful and valuable in my little personal board of directors for our peers and maybe for our mentors. By the way, sometimes it's hard to define. Mm -hmm. Like, is it a peer or a mentor? Because it changes over time. I'm now not as big an idiot as I was five years ago about writing, right? I've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. So All that's right. cool. Very well. So, Paul, Sarah, could you, you find the essay on Ask Give uh, about that? Yeah, we, we, just, we just did. We yeah, just did. Awesome. We, we published it on here on, awesome. on the chat. Uh, Paul, I, see, I know you, I understand you also yeah. have a couple of questions. Yes, thank you, Gibson. Uh, also for the sharing, maybe I can... Uh, had that you perhaps we can have uh, virtual mentors. For instance, I have uh, Tony Robbins. It's my virtual mentor. I've oh, been cool. in DPWs and all, but he doesn't know me, but uh, I follow him like uh, David Asprey for be awakening and well, I'll uh, fine tune your biology. But that's interesting because, like, I bet you when you read his stuff and watch his stuff, you'll notice like bugs, right? He, he he's not perfect, right? You'll like notice like grammatical issues in his writing. People do this with me all the time. I love it. You know, they find the yep. stupid things that I did. Anyways, that's how it starts. <laughs> Maybe you can have a real mentor relationship with Tony Robbins. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it can cost you up to a million <laughs> oh. for, for its uh, mentorship. But anyway, Tony is expensive. I, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm happy to be, uh, you know, a virtual connection with him. So, but the guy you know, is, the, the, is the thing, the, I think the point here of Gibson is is a little bit deeper, right? It's like most people they're afraid of asking. They're not reaching out. And when they do, it's like they don't understand that, you know, it's a win-win situation. So what, what kind of value can you give to your mentor or your peer? It's a very interesting uh, perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, following this line of talk that we are having, Gibson, what's your advice for people aspiring to become VP of product? Find mentors, 
find the peers. Do you have some sort of a roadmap for that career path you want to share with us from being sure. a product manager to become a VP of product? What's yeah, your so secret? Totally. By the way, I have no secrets. I share everything I know as quickly as possible with as many people as I possibly can. So you're correct. One of my career accelerants was I've had this concept of a personal board of directors going for like 20 years. Incredibly helpful to me. You know, the main thing is no individual is self-aware, right? You need help and judgment from others. Okay. So then if there's a career ladder for product leaders, the way I think about it is at the beginning, you know, you're just starting as a product manager, trying to fill out, figure out how to build something, right? How do I get designers and engineers and data peeps and marketing folks working together to build something? And then the next stage is you're trying to build something successful. I call that a hit. If you are able to do that, the next stage, you find yourself building an organization. So you no longer can do all the work. You're hiring people and you're helping to develop teams. And then after building an organization, I call it building a company. That's kind of when you're becoming a VP of product, typically. And then the stage after building a company, if you're lucky, you actually can build an industry. That's bigger than a company. So for instance, I was very lucky. I joined Netflix and my aspiration was to help build a new industry called streaming. And that happened. You know, everybody's streaming today. Uh, and so then the interesting part is what are the skills that you need to develop along that career ladder? So at the beginning of building something, you're sort of learning basic design and management to build a hit you're beginning to learn about this concept of packaging positioning ideas, which is really marketing. How do I build a product that really re it resonates with folks? You know, obviously Netflix resonates with folks. It's a simple way to watch lots of movies, okay? And that resonates. And also the other thing hiding in there is this concept of consumer insight. You know, really understand customers, what they value, and more importantly, what they don't. So then if you're trying to build an organization, now you're learning about leadership, you're learning about strategy, and you're learning about the sort of beginning of culture. And then if you're building a company, imagine a VP of product, now you learn about cross-functional leadership. You know, and you're, when I was growing up in product, I used to say stupid things like, those idiots in finance, what are they thinking? Well, when you're a VP of product, you can't say that because your job is to bring these different functions together. And I call that cross-functional leadership. And you're beginning to learn about company strategy. And then if you're building an industry, then you learn about long, long-term strategy. Think about how many years it took for Netflix to make it so that every device in the world, every screen in the world is magically pre-wired. That takes long-term strategy and it takes lots of partnerships because at the end of the day, Netflix didn't build any hardware, but they partnered highly effectively. That's my career ladder, if you will. At the beginning, you know, you're building something, then you're building something great, a hit, then you're building an organization, then you're building a company, and then you're building an industry. And if you want to be the VP of product, you're going to have to learn those skills along the way. And then there's something else called good luck. <laughs> you know, pick great companies that have high potential that are growing fast because those create opportunities for individuals. Yeah, it's all about uh, taking hard decisions. Like in your excellent presentation of the case, Netflix free trial reminder, where you made a very difficult product decision in order to delight your customers. Basically, this is 
uh, was the reason to remind people that they were heading their free trial and uh, would be billed very soon. That decision yeah. made Netflix lose 100 million, according to, to your presentation. Gibson, what were the key insights and metrics that led you to take this decision? And uh, finally, were you afraid of being fired <laughs> if things didn't work? Okay, well, let's we'll get into product strategy now. So the job of a product leader is to delight customers in hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways. And margin-enhancing just means make money. That's a case that I love to teach. It was the decision of a pal of mine. His name is Tom Willer, but I'll answer your questions for you. So if your job is to delight customers in hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways, one annoying thing about Netflix, they give you this one-month free trial. You sign, you give your email, you give your credit card. And then at the end of the first month, if you don't cancel, you are automatically a member. And what happens is a lot of people on day 31 or 32 after that one month, they would call in to Netflix and say, hey, I forgot to cancel. Can you cancel me? And they would. You know, they'd give them back their money. But, but Tom realized that that was not delightful. He said, okay, we're going to test. We're going to send everybody in, at the end of their first month a free trial reminder. We're going to tell them in a text, in an email, on their personalized homepage, hey, your free trial is about to end. Click here to cancel. And he did that. And the result was for the control group that doesn't get a free trial reminder, 90% go on to the next month. They stick with the service. When you send them a reminder, only 85% continue. And that's what loses you the 100 million bucks, Paolo, okay? So now think about this. Does this make sense? Would you be delighted by a company that sends you a reminder, Paolo, at the end of the first month? Hey, if you want, cancel now. Would that delight you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, definitely right? Me. There's a lot of bad yeah. companies that make that hard and Netflix would make it easy. And then I already told you about yeah. the margin. You know, okay. actually, uh, Teresa Torres was saying that uh, I believe it's uh, New York Times makes or the Washington Post makes it really hard. So you have to call. Yeah. You cannot even cancel it's online. Crazy. So it's crazy. It's crazy. So then the margin part, Paulo, you're going to lose 100 million bucks. Okay. But let's think about the hard to copy thing. If Netflix chose to do this, what is the hard to copy advantage that they're building by possibly doing this? What is it? What is it? Well, they are going to delight customers and yes. uh, they are going to make the customers uh, coming back by spreading the word of mouth and uh, yes. keep All telling. What are yeah. people going to say, Paolo, about Netflix? Wow. wow. <laughs> Netflix is okay. great. They even remind me to cancel That's... my subscription. <laughs> so that you mentioned it, that word of mouth is all about building brand and building a trusted relationship. The opposite of what Andre was just saying with whoever it was, the Wall Street Journal. So here's the decision. You're going to delight customers by doing this. You're going to build an even more powerful brand that's hard to copy. And you're going to lose 100 million bucks. Okay. So if you were the product manager, make this your decision, Paolo. Is this a high stakes decision or a low stakes decision for you? Very, very high stakes decision. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so here's an insight yeah. from Tom Willer. He thought it was actually a low-stakes decision, and I'll tell you why. The first thing is he thought $100 million was small in magnitude compared to the $10 billion in revenue that Netflix is doing today. So he said, you know it's what? Fair. It's only $100 million bucks." <laughs> and the other thing he said was that this is a reversible decision. 
that if you get it wrong, you could change your mind. You don't always have to do this, correct? So he decided it was a low stakes decision. Now at Netflix, whose decision is this, Paolo? Who makes the call on this test? What to do or not, you know? Or guess. I think he's the, the product people, right? It's the product manager. It's Tom Willard's decision. It's product manager, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, what did he do? He decided to do it. He said, okay, we're going to delight customers by sending this free trial reminder. We're going to build an even bigger, hard-to-copy advantage in the brand. And both of those things will outweigh losing 100 million bucks, which I just thought was really cool. That second question is, you know, do you worry about being fired, right? So yeah. Tom didn't. I'll just give you a couple of insights. For, for my five years, I had like, you know, 10 or 12 high-level theories and hypotheses, product strategies about what would work, what would help make Netflix successful, what would delight customers in hard-to-copy margin-enhancing ways. And I was right half the time, only half the time. But that was plenty, <laughs> okay? Like, we got it right. Like, personalization is really good. Social and friends, turns out it's bad, right? Turns out that streaming is really good. And it turns out creating a more entertaining experience, you know, a fun, funnier website, that's bad. I just gave you two hypotheses that won, two that failed. But honestly, getting it right half the time is incredibly valuable. And so Netflix understands that. And they're just encouraging people to engage in high cadence experimentation to use these multiple sources of data, whether it's focus groups or surveys or existing data or A-B tests. That's what we did in the last one. And then, you know, they know that through the half the failure, you're, at least you've learned something. And if you get it right, you're building that delightful, hard to copy, margin enhancing experience. If you want to be an innovative company, you just got to realize there's going to be a lot of mistakes and there's going to be a lot of failures. The key thing is just learning from them. So you become a slightly better guesser in the future. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, it's culture of experimentation and uh, failing True. fast. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, the culture of Netflix is there's some important ideas. One is intellectual curiosity, you know, always trying to figure out how to make the service better. Another one is candor, just saying, no, I think your hypothesis is wrong and why. And then the next is courage. Think about Tom advocating to do a free trial reminder, knowing that you're going to lose 100 million bucks, right? Yeah. And that takes courage. Those are three of the values of the Netflix culture. I mean, there's another one. Uh, it's all about freedom and responsibility. Of course, it's Tom's decision to make that $100 million loss. It's not the CFO. It's not the CEO. Netflix really believes in these talented individuals making these decisions independently. It's pretty cool. If you want to learn yeah. about the Netflix culture, just pretend, just do a Google search for Netflix jobs. They publish their culture right there because they want all yeah. candidates yeah. to understand what they're getting into, right? They don't want them to be surprised. It's way cool. I mean, yes. that, publishing that the famous deck, book, right? Yes, it's very. It, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's cool. It's way cool. Uh, right. Uh, so they, that, a, uh, this is a, of, an, an inspiring. We have a bunch of questions here from the the audience. I don't know if you want to to jump. Yeah. Into those. Uh, so okay. So my last question before the the Q and A: What do you think are the top uh, product management trends and uh, or disruptions for this year and next year? Yeah, I'll answer in the short term and then I'll answer in the super long term. So short term, we're all going to be navigating, you know, what does life look like after COVID? We've all learned a ton. So we've all learned about how to communicate better with each other virtually. I mean, I've learned a ton about that. And, and then frankly, we're all guessing, right? So when are things going to feel more like normal? 
Uh, and we'll be wondering about the value of getting people together. Like if you're going to a conference in October, is that live, virtual? I don't know. So we'll all be learning together. The interesting thing for me in the long term is how the product manager or the product leader's job changes. You know, my hypothesis is as follows. Over the 30 years that I've been doing stuff, it's gotten easier and easier to build stuff. You know, you have things like Amazon Web Services, the cloud, uh, where punk startups with eight or 10 people can do the work that it used to take 300 people to do. I mean, that's amazing. You have these no-code apps, et cetera. The work is getting easier to do. And so I think that the product manager, you know, this is hopeful, won't have to spend as much time helping designers, engineers, data science peeps, marketing peeps to work together to build stuff. That job will slowly become less important. And then I'm hopeful that more of the job will be about developing consumer insight, really understanding what works for consumers and what doesn't. That we'll all be more engaged in the discovery, if you will. We'll all be very engaged in this experimental method of consumer science. What are my hypotheses? How do I test them? And we'll be much less engaged in the day-to-day you know, herding cats. That's what I would call it over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. My guess is that we'll also be able to be more entrepreneurial. Like, think about me. I'm a solopreneur right now. I mean, here's a wild one. 20, 30, 40 years. I'm guessing that over time, we're all going to have multiple jobs. So you won't work for just one company. Like, I experimented with this. I was the one-day-a-week, I'd rather three-day-a-week product leader. I, I ran product for NerdWallet Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I ran product at Life360s Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I ran, I did the same thing at Metro Mile. That is doable. And that gave me time to be a teacher or a writer or a speaker on the side. So I've been living this. You know, I have multiple jobs. I'm guessing that over the next 20 or 30 years, everybody's going to have multiple jobs. I mean, think about it. My dad worked for one company for 25 years. I tend to go three to five years at one company, move on to the next. So the trend line is to you actually do multiple jobs at the same time. So I think it's just kind of cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm aligned so, with that with your vision. Yeah, you are living proof of that, Paul. Remember, so. make sure you get your ski days in. <laughs> yeah, he, and also be awaking and be awaking. Surf days than than ski. Uh, we don't have that many mountains. Do you do but, surf days? You know, yeah, with the team we do sometimes. Uh, we are, we go are you surfing. a surfer, Andre? I'm personally not. I'm a I'm a lossy okay. surfer, but I I go to the beach and I try to okay. you know paddle a little bit and. Okay, my, got it. My That's on my list. I'm like a beginning, advanced beginner at this point. Surfing is really hard to learn when you're old. <laughs> okay, uh, so we better start. We better start very, very. <laughs> better soon. start when you're eight years old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get I'll your kids that. on it. <laughs> exactly. I will. So we have a, a bunch of questions, and we actually have here Marco Gallo. So I'm just going to prioritize this one because it's live. So. I think to a certain extent, you kind of answered to that one, but you might want to add a little bit. So how do you discover your superpowers and when you do, how do you grow them? So yeah, I think those are the two questions. So how do you discover the superpowers and when you discover them, how do you grow them? Yeah. Okay. So I have something I call the 2 a.m. test, which is it's two in the morning and you're consumed by an idea. Okay. Okay. Like, what are you so passionate about that you're thinking about it at two in the morning? That is a clue of what you're really passionate about. 
And my theory is if you're really passionate about an idea, you will be persistent and consistent in chasing that idea. It'll drive your intellectual curiosity. You'll handle the speed bumps. And in fact, that will help you to develop your superpowers. So an example for me, my second year of business school, I was building prototypes for kids' software games at two in the morning. I mean, I had finished my cases, my homework, business school, and I was using HyperCard, like probably one person out there that knows what it is. It's an object-oriented programming language from Apple. But that was a clue that that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. And that's what led me towards building games. And then more specifically, I was a co-founder at a kid's software startup called Creative Wonders. That's where we made Sesame Street software. So I really think the superpowers has to do with what are the things that you're really interested in and passionate about? That's the clue that will drive you to get better and better at that. I mean, right now I'm passionate about my creative challenges and one of them is writing. And so I'm writing more and more. I'm practicing it. I deal well with the rejection. Grammarly, I love. Like Grammarly is like looking over my shoulder, helping to edit. Substack is actually, Medium was awesome. You know, I've got like 12,000 followers. I got readers, right? And they highlight and they upvote. It's awesome feedback. I like Substack even more because people give me their email address and that lets me have a real relationship with readers. So it's super cool. Anyways, short answer. What are you so passionate about that you think about at two in the morning? Mm -hmm. And that will drive your intellectual curiosity, your persistence. That's what makes people great at their job. Those two things. All right. So, Marco, if you're there, if you want to jump into the conversation, feel free to do it. We can allow you to speak. And this goes for everyone. If you want to do your question, you can just do it here live to Gibson. So we do have a bunch of questions here on our list. So Eva Ibañez from Barcelona, she's asking, what advice would you give to not feel stagnant in a product manager role? So I, you know, I don't know exactly what her, what is her case or yeah. if this applies to her directly, but I know she's a product manager. Yep. So any advice here? Yeah. Yeah. Short answer, side projects. So to your point, Andre, I don't, I don't know what's causing her to feel stagnant. Uh, I can guess, you know, the job feels too familiar. You're already pretty good at it. You're not learning new stuff. You know, form your little hypotheses about other things that you're interested in. So if you're a product manager and you want to see what it's like, maybe to become a manager and hire people, go out and have lunch or a Zoom call with peers that are already doing that and learn more about the job and one of the skills. Or if you're interested in a new industry, so that right now you work for Uber and you're interested in working for an enterprise software company. That's the same thing. Just start with that conversation with somebody that's doing the job that you're really interested in. So the next thing is I call them side projects. So especially if you feel a little stagnant, you're working nine to five, you have time. Like instead of watching Netflix tonight, go out and read some stuff that you find interesting or take an online course in one of those things that interests you. And that's the first baby step, these side projects to sort of figure out would really reignite your interest and passion. Another one is look for other potential jobs within the company, something that causes you to learn new skills. It just takes a little bit of work to figure out what are those new skills you want to learn. And that just begins with usually a lunch or a Zoom call. That's the first baby step. A lunch or a Zoom call with anyone specific? Yeah, well, actually, uh, somebody who's doing the job that interests you. I, I actually thought of one other thing. It's sort of a diagnosis. 
I call it the camp model. Sarah, you might be able to find the essay on this in, in Substack. The camp model is I'll ask somebody, what's your overall job satisfaction right now on a zero to 10 where zero sucks and 10 is awesome? Mm-hmm. What's your number on that, Andre? My job, I'm CEO of my own company. I, I would say uh, it's a seven. Okay, it's a seven, which is good. You know, I, I want everybody to be eight, nine, or 10. So I'm going to push you to figure out how it, we can make it exciting. But I know- I'm a 10, COVID. I'm a 10. Oh, okay, a 10. follow Always a 10. That's good. So then <laughs> my, my next follow-up questions are, I call it the camp. C is for community and social. Mm-hmm. Paulo, do you feel in your job you get a lot of connection with um, the community and social with people? Zero to 10, what uh, number would you give it? Uh, well, when I'm helping clients uh, within the organizations or outside? All of the above. That's probably uh, a seven. Seven. Um, okay, good. Yeah. And then do you feel you have, the A is, do you feel you have a lot of autonomy that you can set your own path? Zero to 10. What do you got? Yes, I can set my autonomy, but I have to to deliver and, and to serve my clients. Good. So, what's your number? What's your number on it's autonomy? Like seven, seven. Okay, good. Yeah. And then M is for mastery. Do you feel like you're learning new skills? Zero I am every day. Every day, I'm yeah. learning coding, no code. Good. It's about nine. nine. Interviewing, doing live podcasting. Yeah. And then P yeah. is for purpose, Paulo. Do you feel like the work that you're doing has purpose? It's helping the world. Zero to 10. Where um, are you on that? Yes. It, it's not yet helping the world, but uh, a lot I mean, of, you're, you're of being people too I expect. You're being too humble, Paul. I think but, it uh, is. I would say seven. Uh, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for my friend from Barcelona, ask yourselves those same questions. What's my high level job stat? And then ask yourself, how do I feel about my relationships, community, and social? How do I feel about the degree that I can set my own course for autonomy? How do I feel about the opportunity for mastery and learning in my job? How do I feel about my opportunity in doing my job to provide purpose and meaning? Uh, Paolo, you were awesome. Thank you very much. I actually learned quite about you. Thank you. you. Yeah. And I heard Andre say in the background that you're a little too humble, which I think is Andre's way of saying, no, give yourself a chance. You're doing better than you think on the P and purpose. I mean, for Christ's sakes, you're enabling this podcast right now, which is really about how helping product leaders all around the world. <laughs> thank you, Gibson. Thank you. So thank well, you our next question here goes to Willy Nakata from Brazil. So Willy asks, of course, Willy, feel free to, to jump into the conversations if you want. How do you set a product strategy one year for an early stage product where you have lots of uncertainties. So I don't know if this is a startup. I don't think it's a startup. It's a early stage product for an existing yeah. company, but still. So I'll actually do, you're, you're good to, to think about the difference between a startup or an early stage product in a bigger company. There's some little differences. Um, yeah. So product strategy, you know, at the end of the day, you're trying to answer the question, how will my product delight customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways. Willie, if you want to clarify what kind of product it is, just let us know. Yeah, it would be a a new product into a bigger company. In a big company. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you, Willie. So Sarah, I I wrote an essay called How to Define Your Product Strategy that I know Willie will find very helpful. It's basically like 12 three-minute essays and it takes a step-by-step approach to answering the question. Willie, I think you'll like it a lot. I'll give you the, the high voice, voiceover. Your product wants to delight in these hard-to-copy margin-enhancing ways. I don't know what your product is, but for instance, Netflix, one of the strategies that worked was personalization. We said that personalization would delight customers and make them easier for them to 
find movies they'll love. We knew that the personalization technology would create hard to copy advantage. Today, Netflix knows the taste, the movie taste of 200 million members, by extension, probably 500 million members. You know, everybody's got multiple people in the family. That personalization technology is really, really hard to copy. And then the last is margin, which is does personalization help improve Netflix business? And it does. And I'll explain why. Netflix was able to predict that 100 million people would watch Stranger Things. Based on that, they invested 500 million in the series. They predicted that 20 million people would lock, like BoJack Horseman. Based on that, they invested 100 million in that. They predicted a million people would watch Everest climbing documentaries, like me. Because of that, they invest 5 million. That personalization technology helps them to right-size their investment in different kinds of content. And that's a huge and powerful way for them to build a very successful business. And I'm expecting most people out there. That's just one product strategy. But in that whole series, I helped you to think about how you would develop a product strategy for your own product. I think you'll find it super helpful. The one thing with early stuff, you want to focus a lot on delight. So are you building a product that people crave, right? Um, Because the hard to copy advantage can come later. And quite frankly, the margin can come later as well. But there's a lot of stuff that depends on the environment you're working in and what the company expects from you. So for instance, I worked with um, some folks who built the Facebook portal. It was just important that they delight, that they create this magical experience like you're talking to somebody in your own room. There's a lot of hard to copy advantage in the network effect. But they didn't worry about what's the business model for the first couple of years because Facebook was making a ton of money. So that's an example of how you think about a product differently at the beginning. In the beginning, you got to have something that your customer craves, that early customer. And then those other things begin to fall into place over time. Thanks for the question, Willie. I hope I was helpful. Thanks. So we have like a time for maybe a couple of questions and then we're going to do the raffle. So we have a question here from... Shiv Kapoor. So Shiv is asking when you're working with a business that changes every week, how can you make and stick to a long-term product strategy? So Shiv, if you want, you can explain a little better, a bit better what you have in mind. Sure. Hey, Gabe, thanks a ton for taking out time to speak to us today. Share your wisdom, all your expertise. Love having the chance to talk to you. So I work in the product team at a startup called Urban Company. We're a home services marketplace. Everything from a plumber to gardening to a massage at home, we help you get. And since it's a combination of a digital product and a physical service that's provided, we learn a lot. Categories change very quickly. Customers want different things. The freelancer professional base who list on our platform, they need different things all the time. So when we're working on how do we hit the delivery numbers and revenue numbers for this month and the next month, how do we build a cohesive vision for how the customer and partner side products should evolve over quarters, if not years? That's where I struggle to balance the long and short term of it. And how old is your startup right now? We're about six years old, so we're not that small. But I'm specifically looking after international markets where we've just started six, eight months ago. So it, it feels like a brand new startup. Yeah. So I, 
you know, when I heard things change a lot every week, my guess is you actually don't really feel like you do have a clear and cohesive product strategy. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So you've got a two-sided marketplace. I actually think you'll appreciate reading that same essay, How to Define Your Product Strategy. Two-sided marketplaces, you're actually, like, if you had six high-level product strategies, three of them are going to be focused on the eyeballs, the people who are coming to the product for the service. And the other half are going to be getting the suppliers on the platform. And that's what product strategies for two-sided marketplaces look like. And then the other idea is, still feels like the early days for you, but you do want to have a long-term vision of where this thing is going in the long-term, which is motivating to people in the building, but also motivating to potential investors, sharing how big this six-year company could be after 30 years. So one of the formats that I haven't talked about yet, I call it the Glee model. Chag was the textbook rental company. Our job was to get big on textbook rental. Mm -hmm. But we always knew what our second act wanted to be. We actually thought it was going to be e-textbooks, which was a failed hypothesis. But in what happened is we got big on textbooks and then we led, this is the, I did the G and now the L and Glee. We led homework help. The Check Study is a monthly homework help subscription service that Americans are using. That was like five or 10 years out from the first step. And then there's a experiment today at Chegg about the third step. So this is encouraging people to think long-term. And the third step at Chegg is actually about connecting students with other services like internships for summer or their first job. And what I've just done is shared with you a long-term product vision for Chegg, get big on textbooks, lead homework help, and then extend further into these other services for students. This mm-hmm. long-term product vision gets you to out of the week-to-week mindset into the year-to-year mindset and helps everybody understand in the long term, all things are possible. I mean, right now, Netflix is actually on its first, fifth chapter, and these chapters are usually five to 10 years. It got big on DVD. It led streaming. It expanded internationally. It expanded into original content. And yeah. you can see these little, little signals that they're actually experimenting with interactive stories. And that Mm -hmm. might be big 10 years from now. And this is the value of a uh, product vision. It helps everybody to think long-term because in the long-term, everything is possible. So my main thing is read the essay on Medium and go through those step-by-step processes that I define. And for two-side marketplace, half of your time will be thinking about how do I bring the eyeballs onto the platform And the other half of your time and the other half of the strategies will be, how do I bring the suppliers? And what's the magical connection between those two? And have fun with it. You'll develop a swag of a product strategy, and then you'll share it with anybody who will listen, and they'll help crystallize your thinking and making it better. Anybody can take a shot at a swag, a stupid, wild-ass guess. That's how I always start. I give myself two weeks to do that, and then I just start sharing. And it gets into this great strategic conversation, which is really what you're wanting. 